Well, good morning. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our Psalm, Psalm 139. Today is the last sermon in our series, Honest to God, Learning to Pray Like Jesus. Psalm 139, verse 1. Let's start at the beginning. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now that word, known, it's the key word for the whole psalm. Some form of it, either know or knowledge or known, is used seven times in this psalm. Which if you've been around the Bible a whole bunch, you might know that in the Bible, the number seven is a symbolic number for completeness. God knows us completely. This is a psalm not about God's omniscience, that he knows everything. That's cold and sterile. That's philosophical and theological. This is a psalm about relationship. He knows me. He really knows me. Personally knows me. In fact, this is the same word used as a euphemism for sex. And they knew one another. It's that intimate, personal knowledge. Listen to verse 2. You, you God, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue... Behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Now that, that's, that's a lovely phrase. There are times when my wife knows what I'm going to say before I realize I'm going to say it. And it helps us in certain social circumstances for her pre-knowledge to deliver everyone at hand. Janelle gets it right sometimes. But God, he knows. He knows whatever I think and do. He knows everything about me. I don't even know everything about me. Like the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? I'm continually discovering things about myself. Things I didn't know were there, but God knows. He knows me. There is nothing in me. There is nothing I've gone through. There is nothing I've ever felt or thought or done that God doesn't know. Whatever is in my heart or mind, bury it as deep as I can, and God still knows. Not in some scientific, objective way. This is personal knowledge. You, verse 5 says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. Now, at that moment in the psalm, it's ambivalent, isn't it? You hem me in, you lay your hand on me. Uh, This could be um, not a very comfortable feeling, but it is in the psalmist's mind. It's like a mother who is so good at loving a child, gently laying her hand on him or her in the way that the child enjoys at the time that the child will want to receive it. Verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
It is high. I cannot attain it. God, you have a knowledge of me that I can't even have. Now, like I said, some people find this threatening. Like, is God then like some big brother watching? But that's not what David is feeling here. This doesn't make him feel like his privacy has been violated. To be fully known for David, it's to be completely vulnerable. But if the one who knows everything is completely good, then it's not scary. This complete knowledge for David, it's intimacy, it's liberating, it's life-serving, it's not threatful, it's not harmful, it's like he says, wonderful. You lay your hand on me. God knows everything and still touches me. Doesn't recoil, doesn't turn away in disgust. There are things about me that I'm convinced some of you in this room would turn away in disgust if you knew them. But you don't ever have to be convinced God will. He always is there in love, in compassion. In fact, that's exactly what the next section of the psalm, the first section of the psalm is verses one through six. The second section of the psalm is verses seven through 12. No matter what, no matter what, God will not let go. He is always with me. Verse seven, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even if I can't stand you, God, and I flee from you like Jonah, nothing will stop you from being there. Not only is it impossible to escape from God's presence, God's personal presence, his intimate presence, wherever I go in defiance, in anger, in stupidity, wherever I flee, God's hand, like the gentle, loving, calming, protecting hand of a mother, will meet me there to lead me and to hold me. Those times where you feel unworthy to be held. This phrase, lead me, throughout the Psalms, this is a phrase of grace. It's God's, in the Psalms, leading, it's not like you dragging your dog out the house to go to the bathroom when he doesn't want to go and his legs are out. No, in the Psalms, it's this gentle word. It's in Psalm 23. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. It's Psalm 27, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. It's Psalm 31, verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. It's Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and truth and let them lead me. It's Psalm 61, verses 1 to 3. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. If I succeed beyond all imagining, God will be with me. And if I fail miserably, and if I end up making my bed with death, he will still hold me. This past week, 
I was talking with my therapist about the death of my mother. She passed away on April the 19th, 2020. It was in the early stages of the pandemic. And so she was in a hospital room all by herself. It was around 2.40 in the morning. I have this image of my mom, the last picture taken of her by a nurse right before she passed away that she sent to the family. She's laying on her side in a fetal position. It might be hard for you to imagine, but my mom's hair was thinning. And um, I don't know where I got it from. But the nurses had been kind to her and they had kind of combed it back, which left a substantial amount of forehead in the picture. And that's my memory of my mom, is her on her side in a fetal position in a cold, sterile hospital room. And um, I'm here in Harrisonburg. And my brother and my sister are with my dad, but he's got COVID. And so they're all in separate houses and nobody is with anybody. And nobody's with my mom. She's all alone. And that's the dominant image in my mind. And I'm telling my therapist about how utterly lonely I feel when I think about my mom's death. I was telling this while we were doing a technique, a therapy technique called EMDR. It's a great therapeutic way of dealing with trauma. So I'm describing my mother lying there in the bed and... and um, It's so sad for me to think of her being alone. And then suddenly, I remembered another experience with death that my family had. It was March the 22nd, 2002. Janelle and I were in Seoul, Korea, in a hotel room in the middle of the night, and Janelle miscarried a child, our child. We arrived at the hospital without a translator. They didn't have anybody in the emergency room who spoke English. It was just me and Janelle and a bowl that I used to carry Sydney, our child. And it was brutal, and it took hours. They took us to a room finally, and when the door opened, I saw the sonogram equipment. They couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak Korean. They led Janelle in the room, and as I went to walk in, the orderlies grabbed me and, and forced me out of the room. And um, I... They shut the door and there's no window and I can hear Janelle groaning, calling out for me and I'm trying to get in and these men are holding me against a wall. And then she stopped. And she told me later that she had been begging me to come in and then she began to beg God to let me in the room and as her eyes were closed, she felt me rubbing her forehead as I've done hundreds of times when she's sad or stressed or going to sleep. And she opened her eyes, and I wasn't there, and the nurses weren't there. And she, was, she says she knows that it was Jesus. And so I'm telling my therapist about my mom and how utterly alone she must have been. And I suddenly remember Janelle wasn't alone. And then I remembered when I was in the valley of the shadow of death, and the physicians told me and Janelle to get our affairs in order when I had covid and I was never alone. I never felt alone. And then as I'm in therapy and I'm talking through this, I remember the verse I've been studying all week. Even if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
God will not let you die alone. There is nowhere, there is nowhere that he will not be with you. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light to you. Four times in this verse, darkness is used, chaos, death, the worst thing you've ever done. The worst thought you've ever had. The darkest you have ever been. Covered in it. Covered in sin and shame. The worst thing that's ever been done to you. Jesus was there. You were not alone. In every moment. In every place, in every circumstance, God is with me. He is with you. I am led and held by God in every situation, somehow kept by God, held forever in his hand and his heart and his mind. It's always been this way and it always will be this way. That's the third section, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It goes all the way back. You're not simply a product of natural biological processes. You are a result of the will and the work and the presence of God. God made you. God made me. I'm not an accident. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. There's never been a moment when I was alone. The problem with my memory of my mom is that it's leaving out a very big reality. And I've got to keep praying Psalm 139 until my memory becomes a truer memory. She did not die alone. In the terrible moments of my life, When I thought only the victimizer and the victim was there. That's not the right, that's not the truest memory. Have you ever looked into the eyes of someone who knows you, really knows you and loves you? The worst thing you've ever done to somebody. If you could see Jesus in the moment of that. You would have seen his eyes of love. Even when you were being made, formed, God deliberately and personally brought you with all of your complex individuality, intricate as you are. He was there bringing you into existence. Verse 14, I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. You know what work he's talking about? Me. I'm made by you. Wonderful are your works. I'm one of your wonderful works. This word wonderful, it's used in Exodus over and over to describe the Israel when God was making Israel, when he was bringing them out of Egypt. It's called a wonderful work. You are that to God. My, know, my soul knows it full well. Is that true for you? 
Can you honestly say, my soul knows it full well that I am a wonderful work of God? What if you started praying Psalm 139 and you kept praying it over and over and over until you can say that and it, it's, a, it's a thing you know? And then when we get to verse 17 and 18, the fourth section of the prayer, we see that nothing, nothing we do, nothing that's been done to us can separate us from the love of God. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. My origin and my destiny lie with God. And although I cannot comprehend your thoughts, one thing I do know is that I am always, always will be with you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Every moment of my life, every thought, every word spoken, every secret and insignificant enterprise and deed, every suffering and joy, every truth and every lie, God is with me. Every secret event and every too well-known event, every ray of sunlight, every note which has ever sounded, every color which has ever been revealed, every darkness as dark as the depths of the ocean that I am too ashamed to remember, every wing beat of the day fly in far-flung epochs of geological time, everything is present to God exactly as it was or is or will be in its strength and weakness, in its majesty and meanness. He holds you. He holds me in the hollow of his hand as he always has and always will. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to Separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And because of this, because I know that God knows me and utterly loves me and completely loves me. And because I know that God, you are with me because I know that you will not let me go. Because I know that the deepest truth of reality is that I belong to God. I can pray verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. 57 times in the Psalms, we have this kind of prayer. 57 times in the psalm, this kind of move happens where the person praying asks God to destroy his or her enemies or celebrates the fact that it's happened or that it will happen. Now, what do we do with this? A couple of things. First of all, let's admit when people are hurt, when they are severely mistreated, they should lash out. At the very least, verbally. The worst thing that can happen in the face of severe victimization is silence. This is not the manifestation of an inconvenience. Behind this cry for vengeance is real hurt 
and terror and fear and pain. And when we go through it, we should give words to it. You should lash out. But notice, this is lashing out to God. Take your desire for vengeance to God. To the God who loves you. Who was there. The God who knows you and knows how deep the wound went. It's okay to have vengeful feelings. Tell God. Don't tell Instagram or Facebook or social media. Don't tell somebody go to hell. Tell God to send them to hell. Don't tell somebody God damn you. Tell God to damn them. You should. That's what David is doing here. There are moments in life when you need to go to God and know that with God, in those moments, there are no naughty words. This is not permission for you to take revenge. Vengeance belongs to God. It really does belong to him. And so I can go to him and cash that chip in. Call for God's judgment. Call for his vengeance and maybe you'll stop hurting people around you with your anger as much as you've been doing. The secular agenda that has stolen your child, ask God to damn it. Take your anger to God, the rapist, the murderer, the abuser. Ask God to slay her, him. Take your hatred, find your hatred, lay it out to the God who knows everything and he will know what to do with it because you know what? Some people are praying that for you. Those you've murdered, those you've raped, those you've slandered, those you've hurt. Your enemies are going to entrust you to God. And you can trust him. Abuser or abused, you can trust him. I am such a sinner. I have caused harm. David, praying this, was a murderer. He was a rapist. He could trust his enemies to God and they could trust him to God. And that's where the prayer ends. The prayer ends with David knowing that. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In this room, there are murderers and abusers. There are unfaithful people, selfish people, cheats and liars. We are cruel and vicious. In verse 1, David prayed, acknowledging that God had searched him and knows him. And then for 17 verses, he rejoices in it. And now in verse 23, David is praying and asking God to do it again. 
He can't pray God's vengeance for his enemy without realizing that the God he can trust his enemies to, he can trust himself to. And so he ends, he begins by declaring God knows him, but he ends by requesting God to keep knowing him, to search him again, to find all of the sin, all of the darkness. And then in verse 24, he ends his prayer asking God to lead him in the way everlasting. David knows that God the searcher is God the judge. And God the leader is God the shepherd. Don't you want your judge to be a shepherd? And so David throws his total loyalty on King Jesus. The God who is with us. And in this prayer, David ends by laying himself, murderer, rapist, abuser that he was, he lays himself open to God's examination. Having been searched, he wants to continually be searched by the God who uncovers the darkness and judges our sins on the cross and takes the judgment that we deserve, cheats and liars that we are, He takes it himself. That's what he does with it. Having been known, David wants to be continually known. Having been seen, he wants to continually be seen. Having experienced God's leading, he wants to be continually led. He fully entrusts himself to God now and forever. Pray Psalm 139 this week. Pray it every day. And may you and I become people who are no longer ambivalent in our loyalty to God. May we entrust ourselves fully, inviting God's searching gaze, becoming open to God's instruction, calling on him to lead us out of our darkness and sins and insecurities and pains and suffering and anger and sadness and grief. And let us learn better and better that God loves us intimately. Let us entrust ourselves fully to God, asking him to set things right in us and in the world. Amen.